bit later on today, there is going to be a march upon the Consulate General of India in solidarity with opponents to the government of India's Citizenship Amendment Act. A local group, Seeks for Justice, will be rallying and again taking part in that march. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Jay Graywall with the group, Seeks for Justice, also the Director of International Policy with that group. Jay, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me, Joe. Uh, what is going to be happening today? Well, there's a few groups that are organizing a march in front of the Consulate General downtown Vancouver. Um, there's various agendas. Seeks for Justice, uh, a group that wishes for the Punjab state to secede from the Indian Union, will be participating in the sense that we wish to uh, disassociate with India, and we will be actually burning a paper copy of the Indian Constitution, because the Indian Constitution is the only document in the world that denies Sikhism as a religion. Hmm. And this is something, obviously, this is a, a, a fight that has been going on for some time. Yes, when the Indian Constitution was framed in 1950, the Sikh delegation objected to the document denying Sikhism as a religion and refused to sign it. So much like how Quebec did not sign on to the charter, um, the Sikhs did not sign on to the Indian Constitution. Our delegation refused to sign it in protest. And the Indians have yet to address it and have refused to address it, though they have made several amendments to the Constitution since its conception. And and what is it in particular? Is it a milestone or an anniversary or why was it chosen to take this action today? Well, today is India's Republic Day, which they celebrate to show that they are a republic, a country that follows the law. But if the law itself is discriminatory and um, denies people their religious freedoms, then that law should not be celebrated from our perspective. Furthermore, we also believe that right to self-determination is a integral part of law, international law as well, and that India has refused to allow people to exercise their right to self-determination and have gone so far as to label it terrorism and even accused Canada's defense minister of being, you know, involved in this and that this made us bar him from meeting certain ministers. And this is, it's very serious how far the Indians take this uh, rhetoric and it's time that the international community is made aware of it. Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, the protest today and the rally today, is it to draw attention uh, again to what's happening in India or what is, what is the impact for somebody living uh, who is Sikh living in Canada? Well, again, there's several different groups par- uh, protesting. Some of them are protesting the recent bill that denies Muslims entry into Canada if they face persecution from neighboring states, but grants other religious uh, groups entry. So that's those, you know, there's a group that's protesting that. But for us, you know, many Sikhs have fled India and obtained refugee status in Canada. There's still a high number of uh, Sikhs coming from India uh, claiming si- asylum. And recently, I think the border services re- uh, made a report in which they stated that the ongoing issue of Punjab's secession from India will inevitably result in 
more um, oppression by the Indian states and an increase in claims of asylum by Sikhs in the coming years. So Canada is well aware of what's happening and in some way preparing for it. It impacts Canadians. And as a Sikh, it impacts me from my family side as my family is still in Punjab. So there'll be, you know, a significant amount of impact for Canadians. And it's something that could be avoidable. Canada can ask India to respect international law and the right to self-determination as we do with Quebec and resolve these disputes democratically through referendums. Right. Do you think do you think that could work, though? Do you think India would pay attention or would would do that on Canada's request? I think they would certainly pay attention to it. Um, I think India is an immature democracy. They like the label and the pros of being called a democracy, but they don't want to truly exercise it because democracies allow people freedoms. And that's one thing that India can't afford. But if Canada was to, you know, say this to India that, look, we have a secessionist problem. We don't agree with the idea of Quebec separating, uh, separating from Canada, but we allow them to vote on the issue. And they voted no twice, which has greatly reduced any violence and has, in a way, delegitimized the movement. If they wish to exercise it again, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But we've done it twice. And this is how democracies work. And this is what India should be, you know, aiming towards. If India wishes to get the benefits of being a democracy, that label, that idea of, hey, we're, we share values with India, which India doesn't seem to truly share, but wants to show it on paper. The the act itself, or the the um, the ob- the objection to the Citizenship Amendment Act, it's drawn a lot of anger in uh, the state of Punjab. Certainly, it is getting a lot of attention there. Do you think it's getting enough attention on the international stage? So, in Punjab, it actually has not drawn a lot of attention. Um, there was a shutdown for Punjab, which they had called in protest of this amendment bill, and only one city truly recognized the shutdown, whereas the rest of the state functioned as normal. Um, With regards to is it getting enough international um, recognition? No, there's been a tendency by most countries to turn a blind eye to violations uh, done by India in the hopes that, hey, because they say they're a democracy, we may be able to bring them into the fold of responsible states eventually. So I don't think it has gotten enough attention. However, um, there's many things that India does that doesn't get enough attention. For example, when China uh, challenged the autonomous status of Hong Kong, there was a massive outcry. You know, uh, the U.S. imposed a yearly review to see how that autonomous status is being impacted by China. Whereas when India suppressed the autonomous status of Kashmir, we didn't see that same outcry. We didn't see that same, listen, you shouldn't take these rights away from my people that are, you know, don't want to be part of your union. A, and as a solution, you gave them an autonomous status. So, no, I don't think India's violations get enough attention on the international stage. Oh, and why is that, do you think, that there is that difference between the example you just gave of Hong Kong compared to Kashmir? I think... Everybody still has this hope that India will eventually get its act together, um, being a democracy in the sense that, hey, they have federal elections. Hopefully, they may get their act together. But, and, you know, India claims itself to be a republic. However, um, 
those that are from the subcontinent, we know what's going on. And some people say uh, democracy without rules is basically two sheeps, uh, sorry, two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. And it's a tyranny of the majority in a sense. And that's what you see in India today. You see this right wing Hindu nationalist groups coming forward, changing laws, dictating that, hey, this country is for the majority people, not for the minorities. And the minorities must obey what the majority says. And why Canada, why America, why international partners don't look at this more intensely perhaps because of the neighborhood that India is situated in, China on one side, you know, Pakistan, Afghanistan on the other, they hope that this may be the best chance for that region. But in reality, it's not. And I think it's a lot of wishful thinking that's made them blind. And just uh, getting back, just before uh, I let you go, getting back to what's happening today, do you have any idea how many people are expected or how things are are planned uh, in Vancouver? Well, um, it is a Sunday, and the protests will be at 9 in the morning, so buses will probably leave from various locations in Surrey and other parts of Vancouver at 8. So, And the weather itself is kind of rainy, so I'm not sure to the exact number. However, this protest, a burning of the Indian Constitution, which I may add was also burnt by its first drafter, who said that this Constitution is now not going to be able to give any rights to anybody, um, it's, this protest is happening all around the globe, from England to uh, Toronto to New York to San Francisco. So it's a global uh, process that's happening right now, this rally. All right. Well, I'm sure there will be. You're right. It's not the best weather today, but I'm sure that won't stop uh, people. There will still be many people uh, coming out for that. Uh, Jay Graywall, thank you so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. Well, a councillor in Revelstoke abruptly resigned, said no thank you this past week because of a big pay increase that was voted on by his fellow colleagues on council as well as the mayor. And Stephen Cross is joining us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. Well, you're welcome. So what happened? There was a vote about a pay increase. How did things unfold? Well, it's, uh, you know... It started in November. Sorry, I've got a cold this morning. My apologies. That's okay. It started in November, and of course, it's been a couple of months of discussions, but it was coming down to the wire. And uh, at the last meeting, I tabled a motion for council to move their raises that they've already voted for themselves <clears throat> into and take that money and put it back into our roads and infrastructure. And that motion was defeated, which, of course, meant the raises were going ahead. For me, it was a clear expression that uh, the majority of my colleagues and the mayor, um, you know, were choosing self-interest over community. And I just felt as an elected official in a small town, that just wasn't right. And I just didn't feel like I could continue to work in that basis. So I resigned. And the the raises themselves, so we're talking about, uh, am I correct in saying, so the salaries went from, was it $15,000 for a councillor to twenty five, and then from $30,000 for the mayor to seventy five. Uh, that's correct. So how onerous is the job? Because even so, if we first look at the councillor salary, 25 doesn't seem like a huge number, but do you feel like that's too much for what the job requires? No, I don't. Um, <laughs> the issue is we all got elected knowing what the rate was. Mm-hmm. At the $15,000 level for councillor, that works out on, on the hours I put in, it works out to $19 an hour, which is still 
classified as a living wage for Revelstoke. <clears throat> so it's part-time, right? Right. Um, should it go up? Uh, I think so. Um, because we want to try and attract more people from more walks of life than just uh, people with second incomes and that kind of thing. But the reality is there's a way to do that. We were elected knowing what the situation was. If we're going to do big jumps, it should go to a third-party review. And whatever we decide to do, my position was it should go, it should become only effective for the next council. That's the only way we make the conflict that I see in self-interest versus community service, you know, pulled together in the right way. And I think that's where taxpayers and constituents would likely agree with you in that you took the job. Councillors, elected officials take these jobs knowing exactly what the salary is. And it does seem a little offside to suddenly get into a position and then vote yourself a huge pay hike. I mean, yes, wouldn't everybody love to get a job and vote themselves, uh, appoint themselves to be be making a much higher salary? Uh, What kind of a response have you got uh, both from your fellow councillors and from your constituents? Well, the constituent response has been, by any measure that I can make, overwhelmingly supportive of what I did. I mean, people are, are sorry to see me leave the chair, the, the, the office. Um, a couple of people are kind of upset that, that me leaving is going to cause a by-election expense, which I'm sorry about, but sometimes values do cost a bit of money. Um, for my fellow councillors, um, you know, I think they understand the position. It's been tough. The I know the mayor is decidedly displeased with me uh, and made a reference on radio here on Friday that I was a petulant child that lost and decided to leave the game. I guess if standing up for values is the way you want to look at it, uh, fair enough. I was sorry to see him say that. Um, you know, I think we all elected officials here are good people. They all strive to do a good job. Um, I don't know why or how they lost their compass on this issue, but in my opinion, they did. And I trust me, I tried for two months to have other conversations on this and ask pointed questions. Um, at the end of the day, it was just something I, I, I quite frankly couldn't believe how my fellow councillors and the mayor couldn't see the sense of doing, you know, engaging in this raise the process the right way. Exactly. So why was there or do you think why was there such pushback? Because your idea of having a third party and, and, and making it then arm's length, I, I think people would agree with that. That makes sense. Why was there, what was the opposition to that? Well, there was uh, the justification for not using a third party was, you know, we, we've, we've looked at the data they did. There was a small benchmarking thing done. Basically, uh, you know, a CBC article was pulled down that listed what other people made and, uh, and the numbers were, you know, spitballed and and that's how they came about so they felt they didn't need to spend the money to do a third-party review on that note though a a proper third-party review looks at uh, not only benchmarking it looks at the size of the community the historical precedent the workload the expectations Um, it's much more than just you know scanning and spitballing so and they just didn't feel that was necessary and then uh, they you know the other justification i heard um from their point of view, and I believe this is an honest one, is, you know, we should be paid for the work we do. Um, Again, I have no argument with that, but let's justify it so the taxpayer has faith and transparency, and uh, let's not do it for ourselves. Let's put this in place for the next council. That's So here's a really interesting point. The BC laws say that councillors need to recuse themselves on when voting on any issue of self-interest. The BC laws also say 
that counselors can vote themselves raises. So my position was clearly these two sets of rules are in conflict with each other. And the only honorable uh, you know, way out of that conflict is to use third-party review if you're talking about big increases, because they have to be verified and vetted, and, and definitely only make raises effective for the next elected council. I, and I think a lot of people would agree with that. Uh, was there not an option for you then to stay on as a councillor and not take the pay, right, the, the pay raise? Well, I could do that, but that, you know, or I could take the pay hike and donate it. But that runs into, you know, a personal ethical dilemma for me. I, you know, I just don't believe in doing work uh, and not getting paid for it when other people are getting the same pay. Uh, That would have been symbolic on my part, but hardly, hardly effective in terms of maintaining a sense of the values, the core values that we should be standing for as elected officials. Um, you know, it's it, it's a half measure compared to resigning. Right, right, absolutely. So what is your plan then? As you've resigned as a councillor, will you run again in the next civic election? Well, I, I don't know about that. I, I'm not really, I don't aspire to be a politician. I, I ran uh, this time around a uh, year and a half ago because I saw a need and and I just felt I could be of value on council and, and I care about Revelstoke so much. So you know, I, I have no idea what will happen in two and a half years. It's certainly not my ambition to be a politician, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, we will leave it there. But thank you so much uh, for joining us. I know uh, this uh, story is getting a lot of attention and certainly resonates uh, with others. So thanks so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me on, Jill. Well, this is a case that goes all the way back to August of 2017. That is when Susan Santis was playing fetch with her dog Punky at the Locarno Park Extension in Vancouver. Punky bit a woman below the knee and that bite broke the skin. Punky was seized a few days later by Vancouver Animal Control. And this is a case, again, that went to Provincial Court Supreme. It went all the way to the Appeal Court. It tried they tried to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. That's where the case was dismissed. And this past Thursday, Punky was euthanized at Vancouver Animal Control. Uh, v. Victoria Schroff is, a Vancouver, is an animal law lawyer, also an adjunct professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at UBC, and was involved in this case for much of the case. Case and joins me on the line to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Sure. Good morning, Jill. Uh, it's a sad case, and I know, uh, and whenever we talk about it, I also get email from people saying, well, wait a minute, this was a dog that bit somebody, this was an aggressive dog, wasn't this uh, the right thing to do? But it's so much more complicated than that. So for people that haven't truly been really following along or don't know the finer points of this, what do you think is at the heart of this case? I think at the heart of this case is access to justice for animals and humans and state power. I actually think it goes way beyond a dog, a bite, and a dog owner. It is about those things, but it's not only about those things. Um, Because at the end of the day, what happened here, Jill, is that we have capital punishment for dogs, and a dog lost his life. Was that the just punishment? And we have to ask ourselves if in the absence of a full factual and evidentiary matrix in place in the courts that we can say, okay, we are going to destroy a healthy animal. Um, You know, I think there are so many wider issues that this case has triggered and it being precedent setting for the fact that it went to the Supreme Court of Canada. Three judges there reviewed it. They declined to hear it, but that doesn't mean that they didn't weigh in. 
And that's really relevant for animal law. What does it do for animal law? Because that was one of the fears is people see this case to see that the dog was destroyed and think, well, does this mean that any dog in the future that bites or shows aggression and once the courts are involved, that the dog will be ordered destroyed? No, I don't think so. I think that's that's fear mongering. I, I really think that, yes, the state has power in regards to a dog. Absolutely, I do. But I also think that if people actually went and they read the judgment, they would see of the B.C. Court of Appeal that and that's our highest court in B.C. that they say, you know, in the judgment, it says nothing in the reasons should be interpreted as detracting from the discretion of an animal control officer to craft remedies with the dog's owner rather than applying for a destruction order. So since since 2006, we had a case called Kua, which is the pivotal case in B.C., which said, "Okay, your dog is dangerous, but we're going to release your dog on conditions. And so that was the case that set it all up. And even actually before that, I've been doing animal law so long that I had cases before that where I negotiated my um, dog clients away from destruction. It was it was always possible. As long as you had a cogent safety release plan in place. Um, and so it was possible then. I think it's possible now. So why do you think it wasn't made possible in the case of Punky, where Punky's owner, and there's, I think, another arm of this is Punky's owner calls it unjust that in the beginning she was representing herself and obviously, like a layperson, wasn't completely well versed in law. But why wasn't an option then of a muzzle order or a safety release plan made available in the case of Punky? I know. I don't understand it. You see, at that point, Susan did not have legal representation. I came in on the case at the appeal level. Susan was unrepresented at trial, and that's where the facts of the case go in. She has mental health barriers. A lot of this stuff has come out later because she didn't even, I don't think, know all of the things that she was undergoing at the time, but she had PTSD, for example. She's been candid about that, so I can say that. Um, So, you know, this is what I mean about access to justice. She was unrepresented against a seasoned prosecutor and completely stressed out when, you know, she she could stand to lose her her beloved family member. And sadly enough, that's exactly what ended up happening years down the road because what happens at trial ends up locking down the facts in the appeal as well. Right. So was, was that one of the issues then that when you got involved at the appeal stage, the facts were already entered and it's not as, and you couldn't enter more. It's not as though you, you have a chance at that point to reopen the original trial. Yeah, you don't you don't start retrying it. The Court of Appeal is not retrying a case. They're looking at errors of law, generally speaking. And uh, excuse me. so it's it's like you you don't get a retry on that. And, and it was really, really difficult for Susan because she wasn't able to marshal the facts or have evidence. There was no expert evidence tendered at trial. Um, there, you know, things like that. It was, it was kind of an unusual trial. Most of the animal trials I have are multi-day trials. This lasted for a day. It, it, to me, it doesn't make sense. Um, but that's what happens when you're unrepresented. Um, it can be a very, very tough road to hope. So is, is that one of the, the takeaways from this then? If somebody is to find themselves in a similar position and their dog has been seized for being aggressive or for biting somebody, that if you make a mistake at that level, that 
lessens your chances of getting your dog back. Well, it does. And now we're in a we're in a slightly different regime as well in that the Court of Appeal, as of August 2019, said conditional orders will not be ordered by the court. OK, so there's a very important distinction there. Prior to that, provincial court judges were reading into the statute, the dangerous dog statute, um, that they could say, OK, well, we understand that this for the past 14, 15 years, We've allowed these conditional orders to happen, and we're going to continue with them. But the Court of Appeal in August said, no, no, they'd been waiting to hear this case, actually, for a long time. Not just not Plunky's case. They've been waiting to hear a case about conditional orders for a long time. And, um, and then they ruled that conditional orders are not possible to be pronounced upon by a provincial court judge. But that does not mean that negotiations can't still happen before that time. And that's really important. Right. So what does that actually mean, though? So a judge can't give an order saying this dog can be released with a muzzle order or with a safety release. So what can the judge do? So so a judge has to decide if a dog poses an unacceptable risk to the public, being that it is likely to kill or seriously injure within the meaning of the statute. And then they have to be able to decide that that's what they get to decide. Um, but they have to basically see whether or not that conclu- whether they conclude that there may be circumstances in which a dog that satisfies the statutory definition of dangerous ne- nonetheless does not pose an unacceptable risk to the public, and, and in which case the dog is returned to the owner. So it's not as it's not as black and white as some people may understand it. And this is the other thing that. We're going to wait to see how the case law rolls out because this case is very, very fresh. This just happened in August. So most animal law, in fact, most all cases settle. So there isn't a huge body of case law to draw on in the first place. So, I mean, you won't know about the private settlements that I've had with the Crown. It's not disclosable. Right. Um, and, and those cases where, where, yes, I've had cases where a dog has bitten, and yet the dog has been able to go home with a muzzle order. I can say that much. Um, so, you know, I think if these cases are handled properly and in the right hands, um, and including having, I think, very good veterinary expert evidence, which is helpful to know for both the animal control officer and to give some kind of credence to the dog's behavior, um, you know, because sometimes a dog may need medication. Maybe they're biting because they are unwell. Um, you know, there are lots of reasons why dogs bite. It, it's a natural behavior, but, it, you know, it's, it's not okay to, to say that we should allow public, the public to be at risk. I don't agree with that. We have to balance both. It's not, it's not an either or. All right. We have to have a, a, a good balance. Very Absolutely. important. Absolutely. All right. Uh, we are right out of time. We will talk about this again, I'm sure. Uh, v. Victoria Shroff, thank you so much for joining us once again to talk about this case. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. So we're taking a look at some international stories this morning. And this one is the latest on a number of people being forced into re-education camps in China, talking about the weaker Kazakh and Turkak peoples and what some are saying is an increase in the size and number. Joining me on the line is Salih Hudayar, who is the prime minister in exile of the East Turkestan government. And Salih, thank you so much for being with us, with us today to talk more about this. Thank you for having me. Uh, so what exactly, as far as you know, what is happening as far as the sheer number of people that are being sent to these camps? 
So um, as of uh, May 2019, the United States uh, Department of Defense had estimated that uh, there was at least 1 million, but more likely 3 million people. Um, one of the lead researchers on this issue, uh, Adrian Zenz, with the um, Victims of uh, Communism Memorial Foundation, uh, he estimated that uh, it was 1.8 million, um, and this excludes the number of people being held in the prisons. So it's uh, it's really um, difficult to assess how many people are in the camps and prisons, but we estimate that uh, it is probably um, larger than the 3 million number given by the uh, DOD based on um, uh, our own research uh, that we've done. Uh, based on, you know, interviewing uh, members of our diaspora community um, and then the sheer number of uh, the camps that China has built, prisons and camps China has built across the region. And even getting that number, uh, from what I understand, is difficult in that people have used Google Earth or trying to figure out exactly where these camps are, how many there are. And certainly it's uh, not as though you can get the information from China, which, as far as I know, is, uh, continues to deny that this is even really happening. Yes, um, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute stated that there's up to 1,200 camps. Um, We were only able to find uh, roughly about 465 of these facilities. Uh, We're still, um, it's very difficult to assess, uh, you know, find these uh, uh, using just uh, regular um, Google Earth satellite imagery. Um, However, China claimed, uh, you know, these camps, um, at first they denied that these camps existed. Then it uh, stated that they were just re-education and vocational training centers. And then earlier in uh, December, China stated that, you know, everybody had graduated, but um, these using nightlight imagery analysis, we found out that uh, it actually increased. And do we know, I mean, is it oversimplifying to say people are being sent to these places because they are Muslim? Well, so it's not just because they're Muslim. Uh, There's other uh, factors to it. It's mostly because of their uh, ethnic ethnic religious um, factor. And this is because this region uh, is predominantly a Turkic region. Um, The name the Chinese gave this region is Xinjiang, which means the new territory was formerly called East Turkestan, um, and the Chinese government has been colonizing it. So their biggest fear is that uh, the breakaway of this region. So because you can't measure who is loyal to the Chinese state, uh, they essentially are putting up anyone that's, you know, ethnically Turkic to be re-educated, so-called, in these in these camps. And as far as you know, once somebody goes to one of these camps, do they ever return? So the only cases that we had people return are a uh, few people have been released in a vegetative state. Um, they have developed tuberculosis and have died uh, or have developed other diseases and have died. Um, other than that, we haven't had many people uh, that were released. Um, there were a few foreign nationals that were released um, or dual citizens of other countries that were released, but the overwhelming population, um, we haven't heard many of them being released yet.
And so what is your response when you see governments, whether it's the United States government or the Canadian government, uh, increasing trade with China, uh, being increasingly uh, friendly with China while this is going on? I mean, this is, you know, following the Holocaust in uh in World War II, in 1945, the international community had came together and said never again. Um, and that's why we have the Genocide Convention. And everything that China is doing in this region, I mean, it fits uh, the six categories of genocide listed under that convention. And so we are only empowering China by engaging in trade with them. We're only empowering and facilitating this, uh, this genocide in the 21st century. And how do you stop that then as far as, because again, China denies that this is happening, that there are are human rights abuses, uh, saying that these are simply places that offer vocational training. I think you obviously know that's not true. But how do you actually get more attention paid to this? Well, I think all governments really know the situation. I mean, back in, um, also in November, you had over 403 pages of Chinese internal documents laying out what they were doing in this region. And so uh, I think it's not, it's out of the questions like whether governments know or not. Governments completely know what's going on. It's just, it's not in their interest. Uh, So it's up to the people to, you know, do a bit of research and pressure their governments, pressure their parliamentary members and ask them to, you know, uh, urge the uh, the government and its leaders to uh, push back against this because this is something that affects everybody uh, by buying Chinese goods. Many of these people in these camps are being uh, forced to work in uh, factories that are also uh, producing these cheap products that we buy here in the West. And do you have documentation or how do we know that? Yes, there's uh, numerous documentation um of, of this, this is all have been published by uh, the uh, New York Times and other uh, large media outlets over the past two years. And do you find, too, if we look specifically at the Canadian government, there's been so much attention on the Meng Wanzhou case, the extradition hearing that got underway this past week. Uh, two Canadians are continuing to be held hostage in China. Uh, do you feel like with so much of the world's attention and Canada's attention on that, that it's taking away from from any potential attention that could be paid to this? I mean, um, I don't I don't want to say that it's taking away the attention. I mean, it's that's definitely something that is very important to this case because uh, Huawei does have a, uh, I personally believe it has a security threat to, you know, um, not just Canada, but also other countries across the world. And actually, um, actually China has been holding three Canadian citizens hostage. One of them has been held hostage since 2006, and he's a Uyghur Canadian um, and he's been sentenced to life imprisonment. And some, that's something that the Canadian government seems to have, the Canadian media seems to have forgotten them. Um, so I wanted to raise this issue as well. Um, but I definitely think that the Canadian government can can definitely do a lot more on this issue. I mean, the first thing that I'm, I'm calling on governments to do is at least to recognize these atrocities as, as a genocide. We have the evidence of what they're doing just the UN Genocide Convention and put forth this definition and and find, and and you can see that what China is doing exactly matches that. And now just take that moral responsibility to 
push back against that, to recognize that it's a genocide, to sanction Chinese officials and companies that are responsible for this and facilitating it or carrying out this act. And it must be frustrating to you that while you're calling on that and that it seems like that's something that would be relatively easy for a government to do, there's so much more at play when we talk about trade and not rocking the boat and, and playing this, this international game. Yes. Um, you know, China at the moment, you know, it seems beneficial that doing trade with China is going to be, you know, good, good, good for Canada, good for other countries. But in the long term, it's, uh, it's going to be very bad for, for these uh, countries. I mean, for Canada and other countries that engage in trade with China, because we're only, um, we're only facilitating China's growth. And China is putting that money to expand its governmental security apparatus and oppress its own people and other people. All right, uh, Sully, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but I really do appreciate uh, you taking the time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robin. We've been talking a lot about the introduction of rideshare in Metro Vancouver. A lot of people very excited to try it, not only trying it as a passenger, also as drivers. So we were chatting with Terry Towner, who is a city councillor in Coquitlam. She's now been out for a couple of days as a part-time Uber driver. And uh, yeah, a lot of buzz about rideshare finally arriving in Metro Vancouver. It has not arrived, though, in the Fraser Valley and other parts of the province. And joining me, to talk a little bit about transit options and where perhaps we should be focusing on getting people around in the Fraser Valley is Jason Lum, who's the chair of the Fraser Valley Regional District. Jason, thanks so much for being here. You're very welcome. Good morning. I'm hoping the Fraser Valley isn't feeling uh, very left out because there has been a lot of attention and focus paid to the fact that rideshare is in Metro Vancouver. Jill, we're kind of used to being uh, <laughs> left out of the news cycle a little bit. When uh, out here in the valley, we uh, we watch uh, a lot of the news and listen to a lot of the news happen in Metro Vancouver. And uh, you know what? We we're, we we get over it. We're okay. <laughs> All right. Um, what do you think the focus should be? I mean, as of now, there isn't rideshare in the Fraser Valley. Do you think it would be a welcome addition to the transportation system? You know, as I've said before, I think uh, ride-sharing may very well be uh, a good option for, you know, first and last mile option um, out here. We're a very, in in the city of Chilliwack, we're quite geographically spread out. So, I mean, it would be impossible for us to to build a public transit system that could go to every single part of the city. So... um, you know, if we could focus our efforts on building a public transit system that uh, is efficient and provides uh, a frequency down, you know, a spine of the city, and then people could uh, who required it could could use uh, ride sharing or other modes of, all, of transportation to uh, to get them maybe right to their doorstep if that's what they wish. But um, you know, I've said it again, I've said it before that um, I really believe our focus out here should. Uh, and will be on building a, a good public transit system that uh, has the frequency and availability um, and serves uh, the people of the Fraser Valley as best as we possibly can. So I don't deny it's exciting news for people who've been waiting a while to, to see ride-sharing. And, you know, I've used I've used ride-sharing in other places around the world, and you know, it's it's been a it's been a, a good alternative sometimes to public transit. But I've also used public transit all around the world and, and love that as well. 
Uh, and would you be able to rate it then if you were, say, a scale of one to 10, 10 being the best, how well are residents of the Fraser Valley serviced by public transit? You know, it it really depends across the valley. So from a Chilliwack context, um, I think we've done quite a, quite a good job um, in terms of really keeping the momentum up on our public transit system. We've been able to invest year over year. And, uh, and as I said earlier, we, we kind of focused on building a spine that, uh, of transit that comes north-south across the city and then feeds into it before we kind of ran a bus system that just kind of spaghetti did way, its way all over the city and, and, and wound its way all around. We didn't get the frequency and we didn't get the ridership as a result. So we had to, we had to take a good long look at that a, a few years ago and kind of focus on creating a, a, a spine north-south and then increase the frequency. And we've seen the ridership follow suit. Um, so, you know, in terms of where we're at right now, it's we're probably a seven, uh, probably, a, you know, a seven or an eight. And we need to we need to keep making those consistent investments. Um, one of the things around user experience across the valley is we have a couple of we have these sub regional services that are actually called. And so we need to make a more consistent user experience where uh, people can, you know, similar to uh, to Metro Vancouver, where you could tap in and tap out or use a card or use electronic fare uh, payment. We need to invest in um, in some Google Transit options so people can real time plan their trip and see where their uh, where their buses and, and uh, it is coming and um you know, I think if we focused a little bit more on that, plus added more service, more hours, more frequency, I think we'd be right up there in terms of a rating. Hmm. Why do you think there isn't a focus or there is not even, it seems, a lot of discussion about having a better link between the Fraser Valley and Metro Vancouver? When you look at the numbers of people that are moving to the Fraser Valley, the growth in population, but it doesn't seem like we're looking at all about moving people efficiently between the two areas. Yeah, um, in terms of why there isn't a discussion, uh, I'm not really sure. But, you know, I think with the recent uh, TransLink 2050 um, transit planning um, uh, process that is underway, um, that conversation has started. Obviously, you've heard from uh, Mayor Braun from Abbotsford recently talk about um, requiring some fairly significant investments in terms of uh, transit infrastructure and uh and that kind of kicked off uh, the conversation recently, along with the, the ride-hailing conversation. Um, we've kind of quietly, kind of under the radar, been building a, uh, a regional bus link the last uh, the last few years out here. Uh, we've got what's called the Route 66, uh, that's operated by the Fraser Valley Regional District and uh, BC Transit. It's a partnership where the City of Chilliwack and the City of Abbotsford and BC Transit fund that link. And we've been building frequency. We've been adding more uh, more rides. We've been extending out to evenings, weekends, holidays, and we're seeing a huge ridership growth. So we know the demand is there. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, for us to extend or expand that service, it requires a fairly significant um, uh, tax increase from the residents in Chilliwack and Abbotsford and. And I think we're, we're at the point where we really need a, a significant investment from 
other orders of government to to make that or to continue to make it a, a viable option. But we know that people really enjoy that service. We're extending that service right into the Lowheat Sky Train Station that will happen early next year, which means for the first time, actually, as long as I can remember, and possibly the first time ever. You could take a public transit option all the way from Hope right to, I mean, the Horseshoe Bay Ferry Terminal, if you wish. So um, there is an option there. And, you know, I welcome the conversation that happens when we talk about these big uh, investment numbers, the billions of dollars. And that uh, very well may be where we need to get to. But there are some more pragmatic kind of interim steps I think we can do whether it's, uh, you know, looking at expanding just the shoulders of the highway and making a bus-only lane on them. You know, if there's ways that we can prove out that the demand is there, I, I think we'd, uh, we'd be able to kind of get more uh, momentum in terms of the ask for some of these larger transit investments out in the valley. Mm-hmm. But at this point, you know what, I'm just, quite frankly, I welcome talking about transit in the Fraser Valley. Uh, because there's there's the idea too, where I've heard from people saying, well, why why wouldn't there be a train, either light rail or a train linking Abbotsford, Chilliwack to Metro Vancouver, and that, that that could easily get people out of their cars, it would link the two. Is there a desire for that, or do you think there's also a bit of hesitation in that doing that would likely raise property values, it would raise house prices, and bring on a whole other host of issues? Yeah, I've heard both, you know, um, people move out to the Fraser Valley out of uh, some of the busier areas for the quality of life and for the uh, for the clean air and the blue sky and they uh, and they and they love it. the fact that it's not quite as busy. And, um, you know, we see the rapid growth along transit corridors. So, um, you know, there may be a little bit of that. And the idea I've said this as well, I mean, out in the valley, we we aspire to be much more than just a bedroom community to Metro Vancouver communities. Um, our focus out here from an urban planning perspective has to be how we ensure that people um, can live and work and play out here and without the need to have to commute or get on a highway or get in a single, single occupancy vehicle and have to leave town and spend spend a bunch of hours commuting. So we need to build these commu- uh, complete communities out here. But I also understand that there is a need um, to to get people back and forth. And the, the, with the population growth south of the Fraser and the way that things are growing um, in British Columbia, we are going to need these kind of uh, transit links. And whether or not it's it's reactivating the interurban, the old interurban line um, or looking at another alternative um, for uh, light rail uh, throughout the province, Um it's a little bit beyond my scope and, and capacity uh, to determine which is going to be the most viable, for best bang for the buck. But you know what? I think the demand is going to be there, and um, the conversations need to happen now. So like I said, I welcome having them. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Jason Lum, Chilliwack Councillor, also Chair of the Fraser Valley Regional District. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much.